How many of you remember picking teams in elementary school or high school? Remember how that process usually went? You know, you got two captains, and then they just started picking people for their teams. Well, I, I played uh, in grade 12. I, I actually made the basketball team. Um, it was a lot of fun because I got to go like with the team and cheer them on a lot. <laughs> I remember the one basket I got. It was it was a really quick one. I got the ball right at the key and I just spun around and it went like this and somehow it went in and the coach said, well, that was lucky. <laughs> it was a brick. Normally when we pick teams, like when we played like after school or something like that, there would be like two of the guys, like maybe uh, my, my buddy Corin and Jeff, they were kind of the good basketball players. And of course, when they start picking teams, of course, you know, who do you pick first? Good players, good players right. So, you know, there was, there was the Atwood brothers and, you know, somebody, oh yeah, Jay, you come on my team. And then, oh yeah, uh, you know, the other guy on my team, because I don't know what it is, but Mormons are good at basketball. I've never met a Mormon who's not good at basketball. Anyway, they were like the star players on our team. And uh, actually, I've heard that they have a basketball court in the middle of their sanctuaries. <laughs> Maybe that's a super secret thing. Anyway, they were really good basketball players. And then, and then came like my buddy Jason or um, uh, Korn or Roy Canteris, who is a Filipino. Filipinos are good at basketball too, usually. Um, I pastored a youth uh, Filipino church, uh, and uh, all the kids were really good at basketball. Um, so he'd get picked, and then it would come down to myself and James Wood. We were always the last two. We were enthusiastic. We just weren't great. We weren't, weren't really good at it. Um, you know, and I can remember some of those guys' names that were really good at basketball, and this is like in high school, so this is like 1988, 89, so you can do the math. Um, but I remember those guys that did really well. Uh, picking teams is, is tough though, right? It's kind of, I'm not sure they're even allowed to do it that way anymore, right? Uh, you just number off A, B, C, D, one, two, three, one, two, or whatever, and you know, it's just more random that way, uh, a little more fair maybe, but anyway, I mean the good, the, the teams that I was really good at was like the long distance running team, because I just run a long time and I don't have to compete with really anybody. <laughs> but I was good at that, actually. actually uh, 10, 10K runs was kind of what my, my specialty was. Now, one of the sad things was is that in, in grade 12, my last chance to go to the provincials, uh, provincial track and field meet, uh, one week we had our regional track and field meet, and my buddy Alti Murray and I, we did the 5,000 meter uh, race, so five kilometers around an oval track, lots of fun, I know. Um, funner to race than to watch. Uh, but we, did, we had really good times, and so we got to the semi, semifinals the following week, and we thought that they called for the 5,000-meter race walk, and then the gun went off, and we saw people running. And it was like, oh, no. And then we saw the times for the top two guys, and we were like, we could have gone to provincials. Like, we beat those times last week. Oh. I like the fact that I'm a guitar player and I don't do sports. <laughs> it's 
sports was disappointing for me in a lot of ways. Uh, wasn't really my, my, my thing, but um, the, yeah, uh, picking teams in elementary or high school, you know, being, being one of the last kids to be picked sometimes. But, you know, sometimes it's the people that you don't remember either that may have an impact that you never thought of before or who go on to do different things too. We're going to look today at a little transition passage that we often just blow by because it's a transition passage in Jesus' uh, Jesus' life and ministry. And and we don't tend to spend a lot of time here, but I want us to look at a couple key things that happen in this passage today, especially as we prepare for the Lord's table. We're going to look at how the Savior lived a surrendered life and what surrender to the Savior looks like. So a Savior surrendered and surrendering to the Savior. Those are our two things we're going to look at. And we're in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to just look at 12 to 16. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. And let's just pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that no matter how we perform in life, you have a calling and a choosing and an inheritance kept in heaven for us not because we can perform well, but because Jesus Christ performed perfectly. And his righteousness is imputed to us when we repent and believe the good news that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so, Lord, our performance, we trade that in for the performance of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, And Lord, today as we read about the team that you picked, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we read this short passage. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. So short passage. Well, let's remember kind of the context we're coming into here. We just finished chapter five uh, last week. And at the end of that chapter, we had this situation where Jesus is, uh, the, or actually the first two sections of chapter six, the first 11 verses of chapter six, where Jesus is doing things on the Sabbath that don't make sense to the religious leaders. And at the end of this, verse 11 says, but they were filled with fury. Filled with fury. And the word there is kind of mindless rage. They're just mad. And they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And Luke kind of softens the language there. You go back to Mark, and it says, and they went out and they plotted how to destroy him. Like this, this was it. They were done investigating. They had cast their vote. Jesus must be eliminated. So what does Jesus do in response 
to this. He goes on out to a mountain and he prays. He prays all night. Charles Spurgeon said of this thought here that the best answer to slander of the ungodly is to be in constant communion with God. As this first response of Jesus to, to fury and opposition is to get away and to pray. In these days, this is the only New Testament occurrence of this phrase, and, and it points to a plot progression. It's, it's coming on the tail of what we just read in chapter 6, 1 to 11, and leads us into this next phase. In these days, at this time, he goes out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, there's a number of times in Luke's gospel where Luke tells us that Jesus went out to pray. Or he got up early in the morning and went to pray. Or after he heard about John the Baptist being arrested, he, he was ministering and he dismissed the crowd and he went up and, and he spent some time in prayer and then he came to the disciples kind of in the middle of the night and walked on the water. But this is the only time where Jesus is said to have prayed all night. It's an all-night prayer vigil that Jesus holds at this time. Have you ever thought, Jesus is the Son of God, holy, so he has no hindrance in his relationship with God, and yet he spends an entire night in prayer. Why? Why does he have to spend so much time praying if he has this perfect relationship with God? Why does he spend so much time in prayer? Because he's a surrendered Savior. So remember that he is the surrendered Savior. Philippians 2, 4, 2 and 4 to 11, this great hymn to Christ in, in Philippians, and, and Paul's, Paul's encouraging the Philippian church to have the same mind in you that was in Christ. That though being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took up the nature of a servant. He's a surrendered Savior. And a surrendered Savior that said, I, I am not going to take up my prerogatives and my power and authority as, as, as God. I'm I'm going to come and I'm going to serve and I'm going to humble myself to obedience. He's going to be obedient to the Father in his ministry. So he's a surrendered Savior. And what does a surrendered Savior do? He gets away. He has to spend time with the Father constantly. And he does this away from people, away from the crowds. Very rarely do we get words of Jesus to the Father in the presence of witnesses. Jesus lives out Matthew chapter 6, what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to you know, parade it in front of people and pray in the street corners to be seen by men, to be honored them. I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, go into the closet, shut the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Your Father who is watching and seeing that will reward you. So Jesus prays alone. He models a prayer life of intimacy with the Father. 
I think there's three things that Jesus needed in this moment. One, you know, the pressure is mounting. Opposition is coming. And Daryl Bach in his commentary says, rising opposition means Jesus must organize his followers. Preparation for the mission to come. He's going to send 12 out on a mission. Then he's going to send Luke's gospel. He sends out 72 on mission as well. There's an anticipation that the ministry has to expand beyond just what Jesus can do as one man, as well as the anticipation of his future departure through death. And so Jesus takes time to pray carefully over this because there's tons of followers, there's tons of disciples, and he needs to pick leaders now. And so he spends time, one, he is undisturbed in prayer. Verse 17, he came down and he stood on the level place. The great crowd of his disciples and the multitude of people, he needed to be in a place where he was undisturbed to, to commune with the Father for this, for this very purpose. You know, there's so much noise in our world, in our Devices on our TVs, just e- even in our community, there, there's so much noise. There's, all, there's always stuff coming at us. And Jesus knows what that's like because he had people coming at him all the time, whether they were wanting to follow him or whether they were wanting to oppose him. He just always had people coming at him. And so he would often withdraw so he could be undisturbed in the presence of God. And if the Holy Son of God needs undisturbed time in the presence of God, we do too. To pray undisturbed, to pray unhindered, to pray unhindered, probably praying out loud. How many of you have ever tried to just pray silently for more than 10 minutes? Where does your brain go? Everywhere, right? Extended times of prayer, one of the helpful things is just to say it out loud, just to start talking to God out loud, reading scripture out loud. Using your voice is just kind of engages a whole other set of, uh, of faculties and, and, and awarenesses. And so being alone kind of helps with that, right? Uh, in, in my former church, there was, um, you know, early in my ministry, I, I would rehearse the sermon. I would get up and I would, tr- I would preach to the empty room just to practice kind of getting through stuff and hopefully it made sense and stuff like that. And, and uh, I did that there. I was comfortable doing that there because there was never anybody else in the building. But when, you know, oh, somebody's coming in, then it would be like, you know, kind of pull back. I wouldn't be as out loud about it, right? Because it's weird to preach to an empty room. But to be unhindered and just out loud prayer to God, we need to get away from people so we can just let it out. Sometimes you need to go through like the Psalms. Like the Psalms are prayers of, to, to God and they're, they're meant to be sung and, and, and repeated out loud, not, not read silently. Remember, silent reading is like a very new invention. But out loud reading of, of Scripture, out, out loud reading, you go to the Psalms and you get all the different emotions that you can possibly feel from from anger and frustration to joy and celebration and everything in between and just letting it out before God. And Jesus does this too. We'll read the different times that he prays. 
when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he even gets away from his three closest friends so he can just say, God, I just don't want to go this way. Is there any other option? He needed to be undisturbed. He needed to be unhindered so that he could just pour out his heart to God. And notice <laughs> the last thing, he prays unnoticed. Other than his absence, the disciples don't, don't really see him, don't hear his prayers. It's almost like, you know, all, all these times we've, we've looked at in Luke's gospel where Jesus is teaching or explaining from scripture and he doesn't tell us what he's teaching or which scripture he's explaining. Uh, likewise, in prayer, we, we have Jesus praying unnoticed. We don't have the content. But it made such an impact on his followers. It made such an impact, this surrendered Savior on his disciples, that he was a man of prayer. And I like an observation that, that Charles Spurgeon had on this. He said, here is Jesus, the greatest of all preachers, but his prayers made an even deeper impression on his disciples than his sermons. For they did not say, Lord, teach us to preach, but Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That's what they, they saw that they needed some coaching in this life of prayer that Jesus had. And so the surrendered Savior is a model of prayer for us. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples, chose from them twelve, whom he named his apostles. Now I want us to think about those three verbs in that sentence, in verse 13. He called, he chose, he named. Notice that all are disciples. There's a large group of disciples, and we'll see that in verse 17 too. A great crowd of disciples. All are disciples, but few are chosen as leaders. See, there's levels of responsibility even in Jesus' time of ministry. But he called this great group to him. And then he chose 12. Called, chosen, and named. He called out of that large group, 12. And now we, we know that um, in, in Judaism, the number three or seven or 40, very significant numbers. The number 12, really the only significance really is one thing, and that is the 12 tribes of Israel. So here is Jesus reconstituting what it means to be the people of God around these 12 that he calls. And following this, he's going to give them kind of the ethical boundaries in which the people of God are going to be defined. Kind of like the, it's the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke's uh, sermon is much shorter, but it's really the ethical focus of what the people of God are going to look like. And this passage really sets up the Sermon on the Plain, which is going to be our focus for the next four weeks in the rest of chapter 6. Here he chooses 12, and he's saying, he's saying, we're going to start over, and here's the guys I'm going to start with. And there's three groups of four here. You have Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John. 
Now these guys we've already met. We met Peter in chapter five, verses one to 11, and James and John were part of that call as well. Andrew we don't have named here, but if we go to John's gospel, we see that Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist who first followed Jesus and then called Peter to join him. The different, different story in that, in that text. Well, you have kind of the big three in that group, right? You've got Peter, James, and John. And we'll read a lot about them in the Gospels and in Acts. We'll hear a lot from them. We don't hear much from Andrew. And then we've got another group of four, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And we know something about these guys, but not much. Right? Philip, we see later. No, the, the, the Philip in Acts is actually one of the seven that are chosen. He's not one of the apostles. Right? The Philip that meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the road and explains Isaiah to him, that's a different Philip than this Philip. So this Philip, we don't know anything about. Obscurity. Bartholomew? Could be Nathaniel is the second name, but Bar means son of Tholomew. We don't even get his name. Like, we just get who his dad is. Like, this is, an, this is an apostle. You would think, you know, there'd be some information about this, but all we get is, oh, yeah, this is this guy, his dad's name is Tholomai. Um, he doesn't even get a name in this list. Matthew, Levi. Again, other than his calling and the party he has for Jesus, he kind of disappears from the story. Thomas, we get at the end of John. The guy who said, hey, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and the, where the spear went in his side, I don't believe that he is risen from the dead. Well, here's four guys that basically, they're part of the 12, they're apostles, but we don't know much about them at all. And then, the last group, the last group of four, all have some sort of qualifier by their names. There's James, son of Alphaeus. Got to separate him from James, son of Zebedee. And so there's this clarification here. Simon, called the Zealot. Um, we won't go into all of that means. We talked a little bit about these different groups a few weeks ago. Judas, the son of James. And again, we got two Judases here, so we got to define who is who, but we don't know... These three guys, again, we don't know, we know even less about. Other than the name on the list, nothing. Nothing in Acts, nothing in the Gospels. They're just on the list, and that's it. And then Judas Iscariot. And that could mean a man of Kerioth, which would mean he's the only, uh, it's a different city, kind of in a southern Judean town. He'd be the only non-Galilean in the mix. Or it could mean Iscariai. Uh, the the Iscariai were a group of uh, zealots who basically carried daggers with them. And at a festival, if they found, you know, either Romans or Jews they thought weren't living right, they'd just kind of knife them in the back. Like literally, not, not back, like this is where backstabbing comes from, really. They were kind of assassins. Well, that's kind of a sketchy uh, possibility. It's just this word Iscariot doesn't, uh, kind of defies a particular definition. But who he becomes is more important. Who became a traitor. I remember that, he became a traitor. He wasn't at this point. We know so little about this list. 
Some are only on this list, and we know nothing about them. See, God's calling and God's choosing doesn't mean we get the whole story, or it doesn't mean that we get a place in, with our name in lights. Or, you know, God's calling and God's choosing for ministry doesn't mean that we get to see the results of even his calling and choosing. Sometimes God calls us, chooses us, and even when he chooses us for something very specific and very important, it's going to be totally under the radar of everyone around us. And that's okay. Because everybody's gift and serving is different. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Right? There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There's different kinds of gifts, but the same God is working in them. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all workers of miracles? Do all speak in tongues? And, and, and the, the expectation of all those questions in 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul is asking is no. Not, we don't all have the same gifts. We are all equipped differently for the purpose that God has called us to himself for. Even in the choosing of the 12 whom he named apostles, there is obscurity. And so, as you're living out your life and doing what God has called you to do, whatever that is, the obscurity is okay and the, and the serving in the background is, is, is amazing. And whatever job you're doing, doing it out of this call and this choosing of Christ. You know, I wonder how many of the apostles went back to kind of their normal work. Did we overread this, the, the, the idea that when Jesus called them, they, you know, it's, it says they, they left everything and followed Jesus. But, you know, Peter had a wife and a family. And what, pro, what provision was made for them? We know from archaeology that in Cana, the, 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 the house that, that became kind of a center of the church in the earliest, earliest days of the church was likely Peter's house. We, we know from Paul's talking about, uh, uh, about Peter later on in Corinthians that Peter took his wife with them on his, his ministry. And so these guys are also probably still caring for their families, providing for their families. Maybe going back to work, we only have about three months of information and all the gospels put together out of three years. And so it may have been a little different than we sometimes think, that it was like three year, 24 seven, being with Jesus every day, all day. It may not have been like that. Sometimes when Jesus calls us, he chooses us, he appoints us for a specific purpose. It's just to simply live out faithfully that calling and identity that he has given us in him and through him, regardless of kind of what we do in our day-to-day -day lives, but we live out that calling even in obscurity. <clears throat> this is what it means to be surrendered to the Savior. We, we serve a Savior who surrendered, Philippians chapter 2, and then we surrender to the Savior as he calls us, <coughs> chooses us, 
and names us his own. 1 John 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us. Or the NIV says, lavished upon us. It's a perfect, active, indicative verb that means that he has given us. It's a completed action with ongoing results. The, the love that God has given us is ongoing in its effect. See what kind of love the Father has given us. His full love he has given us once for all, but its ongoing effect is that, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. That we should be called children of God. That's the calling, and that's what we are. Isaiah 43, 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have acted as a kinsman redeemer, a close family relation that has come to rescue you and pay your debt and your ransom so that we can be back in family relationship. That's what redeemed means. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Called, chosen, and named as family members of God. Well, Jesus spent all night in prayer before making this decision, before picking the team for this specific moment. And Paul tells us that now Christ, seated at the right hand of God, intercedes for us day and night. And when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with word groanings that words cannot express. That Christ still intercedes for his people and he still calls his disciples and he equips them for the ministry he has for them. You and I, surrendered to the Savior, are called and chosen and named in him. As we prepare for communion, think. I want you to just bow your heads and hear these words that Paul uses to talk about different groups of people from all over, from the Romans, the Corinthians, Ephesians. Listen to this. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Loved by God, called to be saints, holy ones set apart for him. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Corinthian church, Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, made holy, set apart for his special purpose, sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. One Lord, sanctified in Christ and called to be saints. The first bit of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us now, currently, presently in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Loved by God, called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus, blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, predestined for adoption through Christ. This is the amazing work of the surrendered Savior who reaches out to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose. I've called you by name, you are mine. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you surrendered to the will of the Father, that you, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took up the nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You were raised and exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, our surrendered Savior, as our exalted Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you that you call us, you choose us, you name us your own, You call us to yourself. You change our identity for in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. For you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, Lord, fill our hearts just with worship and adoration and humility that you would reach out to us that you would leave the throne of heaven that the word would become flesh and make his dwelling among us and in him we would see grace and truth fully embodied and on the cross we would see the greatest act of love ever displayed for all humanity 
And Lord, that in that you have gifted us with an amazing possibility that as we repent and believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you replace our shame and our sin and our condemnation with love and belonging, family, and freedom. That we have a new identity because of what Jesus Christ did. He called us to himself, chose us before the foundation of the world, and named us co-heirs, sons and daughters of the King. Lord, may we rest this day knowing that you have done all of this for our freedom as a gracious gift through the work of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.